Hi, Joe. Hi. <laughs> That's a bit shocking. Um, yeah. So what's going on, man? Well, I don't know if we want to start with the, just dive right into the topic. I yes, let's. Because I, I want to talk about these podcast apps and things. I'm always thinking about this kind of thing. No. Yeah, well. <laughs> you. Oh, it's so easy to irritate you. Not true. It's just so obvious what's going to irritate you. Well, that's the thing. It's not that it's easy. It's that you're oh, really no. knowledgeable about how to do it. Because <laughs> you seem very adept at it. Other That's people true. find it quite a bit more challenging, I think, than you do. Maybe they maybe they don't see it as challenging. They just don't see the sport in it. Oh, that's true, too, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I got to say, I enjoy it. You have that, you have that, <laughs> um, that unfortunate union of skill and delight. Yeah. Yeah. You're both good at it, and you enjoy it. I should put up a blog post about this, though, and we should put a link in our uh, a post about annoying. No, me? no, no, no. I'm back to the. I'm I'm bored with this topic already, Joe. I'm bouncing around. I've already I've already a few sips <laughs> into my coffee. It, how can you be bored with a topic that I'm not even aware of? How I, how did that happen? No, I'm bored with the topic of annoying you. Oh, okay. Yeah, because uh, I'm already you know it's, I'm always doing it. What anyway. are you doing a post about? I think I should do a post about these uh, about podcast apps again. I've already done one blog post about podcasts, like before we started the show. Yeah, and and I feel like we need something on our webpage because we do get a lot of listeners. You know, every time we get listeners who've never heard of the show and just follow a link, they yep. go to a website. Right, and I feel like a lot of them will hit the little play button there, which I think works pretty well, but maybe not all the time. Yeah, uh, and but that's no way to listen to the show, as we've said before. We're not going to go into podcast apps and everything again right now. Uh, but I feel like we need more guidance there about, about, about how to do it. Um, more information, certainly. Yeah. Well, guidance. Infor- uh, well done, Joe. Well done. Uh, w- what I'm thinking though, is that, um, you know, for some of the same reasons we started doing this show that, um, you know, I started to really love listening to podcasts. I listen to them on the go, you know, I have them on my phone. They really are fun. Um, a wide variety of them. And here's the thing. What got me into, what, what allowed me to get into podcasts is that I am a total nerd, right? So I'm willing to like go jump, I download all these apps. I kind of figure them out. Like, so if an app is geared towards nerds, I'll probably figure it out uh, pretty soon. It's, it's what I do. It's what I do. Um, and, and, and so people like me, you know, got into podcasts. So they've started to get more popular, you know, nerds get into them quite easily. But, he, but the reason that I think that they're going to be big is that all you know? Although my nerdiness kind of got me into listening to podcasts a while ago, I don't. It's not my nerdiness that helps me to that makes me enjoy them. True, like I don't enjoy the podcasts I listen to because of my nerdis, nerdiness, except for a few. Right, you know the incomparable. Yes, and and many many people can enjoy podcasts of many different types. Exactly, because they're not. It's not about nerds or not. And the apps it's are, about things that you think are fun. Right. And many people think many things are fun. And and listening to very particular kinds of things that interest you yeah. at a time and place of your choosing in the most convenient form possible, which is out of, you know, right. out of your earbuds into your skull from your phone. Yeah. You know, anytime you want. Or through the car. It just comes on automatically. Yeah. Through the Bluetooth in the car. Exactly. It's amazing. It's it amazing. It's incredible. I love it. Uh, and so I think the apps are getting ju- to the point now where, you know, People less nerdy than me, you know, will eat, can easily use these things. They'll yep. get them. And I feel like we need a little roundup. Sure. Uh, which is so accessible give, from our I think I should do. Do you think I should do that? I think it sounds like a great idea. And you can include Overcast and Castro. and Yeah, Overcast just came out. But we, all right, so we're not going to do that now. You've no. already said that you don't want to talk about this now. In fact, we're... 
two minutes or three minutes into something, you would rather not have been in the show. Is that right? In retrospect, I suppose this has been fine. <laughs> That's <laughs> so this is the three star portion of the of what is otherwise a five star show in your view. Yeah. Okay, well, let's uh, immediately go to the next topic. Nice. Uh, the fifth edition, uh, fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons is coming out, Joe. Oh, <laughs> no, no, I'm just, listeners, don't hit stop. I'm just joking. We're not going to talk about that right now. Oh my goodness, we're not going to talk about that. There is a really cool discussion to be had about law and games. I think that's true. At some point, is law a game? And you say uh, law and games, maybe it should be law as games or games as law or law is games. I saw a podcast recently, uh, um, a law podcast that talked about games. Dungeons and Dragons, actually. So, yeah, maybe one day. Now we'll let the listeners write in and let us know. Oral argument podcast at gmail.com. Joe, what's our email address? Oral argument podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. And, and did like, you just say, it? yeah, like we said last time, I, I want to make sure people hear it. Yeah. Like we said last time. Listener feedback and support is the fuel that runs this thing. Yes. We also need coffee, but we, you know. Absolutely. That's that's the fuel. So, for example, um, I think we're going to be chatting about something today where people could send us uh, their favorite. They could send us a note about why something is their favorite. And that would be really neat. And so we're going to talk about our favorite movies today, right, Joe? No, no, we're not going to do that. Although that would also be a good podcast. Uh, we're going to talk about our favorite what? It would present the same problem as today's. Well, that, we'll talk about that. This is the meta discussion you want to have. Yes, I, today, want to do, I want to do the meta discussion before we do the discussion. I emailed you and I said, Joe, Joe, I said, because I always start like that. Joe, what's your favorite case? And here's why I think that's a very challenging question. Because... Um, it's framed in such a way that it indicates that the answer desired is a single thing, a single item, a single case. What is your favorite right. case? And that's very hard for me to answer because I think of all the hundreds that I would want to name my favorite. And you can't do that because that means it's not your favorite. It's they are your favorites. So I think, oh, well, maybe you say, you know, what's your favorite antitrust case or your favorite patent case or your favorite copyright case or your favorite... And, of course, you meant Supreme Court case, but you go, like, what's your favorite appeals court case? What's your favorite Supreme Court case? What's your favorite district court case? What's your favorite U.S. case? What's your favorite British case? Like, there are so many good cases. Do they even have cases over there? (laughs) Yes. No, of course, Supreme Court case. But, you know, I guess you could use appeals court cases. Whatever. Just your favorite legal case. That was the question. What's your favorite case? Oh, so I I could pick a case that is not a Supreme Court case. Of course. But you've already made your choice. This makes it very hard. Well, you could revise it. So today we're going to talk about my favorite case. And how can you pick one? There's How is it possible to pick a single one? Yes, I how, just don't understand. Indeed. Well, hmm. there are many great cases. And, and, and cases are themselves opinions. We're here we're talking about judicial opinions. Yes. The universe of those doesn't even contain, in my view, the best legal writing. Oh, right. The fair best little writing is, you know, there there are books, there are articles, there there are things which are better than than even I think the best cases. But cases are kind of a different thing, right? It's well, it's yeah. about context, time, effect, uh, aesthetic quality of the writing. There's so much that goes into you're what also, makes a you're great, adjudicating. You're choosing what right. will happen next in the dispute. That's of the essence. So if you don't do that and explain it. 
in this form, right? You're it's failing of its essential purpose, right? Whereas an essay about a legal question, um, a, a book, a, an article, whatever, it doesn't need to do that. It's not settling an adjudication and identifying the next step in the adjudication. And in the United States, this is distinctive uh, of courts, right? That they will reach a decision and then write an explanation of that decision, yeah, and, and disagree with one another. Imagine if the legislature did that. Joe. It's hardly the only, uh, as your joke of about the United Kingdom revealed, it's hardly the only place that people write opinions. But our, right. our style in the Anglo-American tradition, uh, and and you'd have to even say now the American tradition because it's different, uh, or the U.S. tradition to distinguish Canada or Mexico or what have you. So, uh, yeah, it's it's there's a lot of there's a wide range of practice, and the United States state and federal courts have a particular practice. And you want me to pick one of those? It's like how do I do that? I did, but God, it's, but then I made it into two immediately. I'd like to hear from the listeners too, about what some of their favorite cases are. And so I'll tell you how I arrived at mine. Uh, I, I, you know, and like asking what your favorite album is or what your favorite movie is. I think these things are always changing. Yeah, that's right. And things mean different things at different times. And it's a hard question to answer anyway. I think as I mentioned the podcast in the past, uh, this is why when my kids come home from school and we're sitting around the table, I, I try to resist saying what was the best thing that happened today or, or you know, they're going to be coming back from camp soon. What was the best thing that happened? Because that's always it's too you, hard. You free someone up, right? Yeah. Cause they're like, Oh, not only do they have to think about things that happen, which is all you really care about. You want to hear right. about all the things, right? They're trying to rank those things and then they don't want to make value judge. You know, it's, it's right. a problem, right? It is. So I just say, what's one good thing that happened today mm. or what's one good thing? What was one interesting thing that happened at camp? Or more. And, you know, they tell me one, I'll, I'll ask for more. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm never satisfied. I'm always, I always want more. Uh, but, so it's a difficult question inherently. Because yes. it calls for reflection and ranking. And by ranking, you say something about your own values. Uh, you discount some things which you think have value relative to, you know, you it's said, a hard thing. You said, tell me about one great case. What I would probably wind up doing often is talking about the most recent one that I read that I really liked. So it would be right. pretty presentist. Right. Although I might have, the most recent one that I read that I liked might have been from a long time ago, but it might not have been. So it might have been recent. W- when I thought about this question and... and Why it, did you think about this question? Really, I thought about this case that I want to talk about. Oh, okay. And, and I'm trying to reflect on why I think of it as my favorite case. Mm. And and so yeah, I've kind of reverse engineered the problem. So oh, if you, nice. you know, if you'd asked me what's your favorite case, I probably would answer this one, but only because I've thought about this case in the context of it's being my favorite. Wow. Okay. You get that? I do. Yeah. So it's a little bit unfair because um, I'm asking you that question and you haven't thought of it in the same way. This is right? why uh, in social psych experiments, if you ha- ask people to watch tape of one person asking trivia questions to another and that person trying to answer them, people rate the person asking the questions as a lot smarter. Yeah, the quiz master than the answerer. Right. Um, it's obviously it's a it's an attribution error problem and all sorts of other things, but it yeah. That's why that, I always ask the questions, what, Joe. <laughs> Woohoo! Uh, Joe, what is virtue? You know, that kind of thing. Mm. I'll tell you later. Well, so in thinking about uh, this question or, or in thinking about why I answered the question the way that I have, for me, I, it goes back to my experience as a law student. And some of our listeners have been to law school, some haven't. But you know the drill. I spent, this was a case I read in my first year in constitutional law. 
And, you know, you're reading lots and lots of cases. You're reading lots of arguments which use new kinds of ideas, uh, new basically theories of justice, theories of people getting along, theories of the human mind. I mean, some of them are clearly wrong, but some of them, you know, you haven't encountered all of them before. And you're seeing them weave, you're seeing them woven together in ways that, you know, aren't exactly like other disciplines. Certainly for me, coming from mathematics, you know, this is, there was something familiar about legal reasoning and yet something, you know, I would say, yeah, obviously much more real, but just different about it, right? There's, there are no right answers. There are just answers which you might find you might find acceptable unacceptable legitimate less legitimate illegitimate um and so i'd been through all that and kind of had a handle on 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 these things and then con law i was surprised taking it about how much i was learning about american history Mm, very true for the first time it felt like and you know i went to grade school in south carolina Mm. uh in the 70s and and 80s uh, and and I you know I don't have a firm I don't have a I don't have a real memory of, of being told things which were you know abjectly racist or anything like that about the Civil War. Um, I don't have a memory of you know I, I don't I don't have these distinct memories of clearly wrong things that were taught. And yet when I was in con law, it was like for the first time you just see the you, the 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 whole struggle over race is so obviously central to so much right and it and and it and it i I would say spills over into the law but i would say it almost animates you know it certainly animates constitutional law in the latter part of the 19th century and into the 20th century and when i read uh in the case i'm going to talk about is plessy versus ferguson uh the the case which upheld separate but equal uh and was the law of the land until Brown versus Board of Education. It was uh, a revelation in a way, and not because of what it held. The majority opinion um, is, you know, it's stinky. Let's just say it's not a good, you know, it is what it is. Uh, It's it's, uh, Justice Harlan's dissent, which to me was so remarkable and was just bursting with ideas. Like some of the best legal writing. Maybe not every idea is fleshed out, but it just it just sparks so many different areas of your brain. And one of the things that is, one of the reasons that, you know, like a lot of things you read as a law student, you know, you'd be, wow, that sounds so, you know, you're amazed by it. But one of the reasons this dissent has stuck with me is because it, it sees so much. It doesn't elaborate everything, but within this opinion are so many ideas about race that inform the disputes we have up until the present day. Affirmative action, for example. It's just, it's all in there. Mm. But so too is, I think the, um... It's so it's such a flawed dissent too, right? It's not at all a perfect. Uh, it's not as though they're clearly the bad guys in the majority, and here's Harlan who is clearly the good guy, right? There are parts of this opinion which are clearly, you know, which is clearly the product of its time. Well, sure, he is as much a situated, real human being in time and space as the members of the majority are. That's exactly right, and and there are parts of this which are, you know, it's it's. But to modern ears, extremely impolitic and weird, <laughs> deeply weird parts of it, right? Right. And yet it's, at its core, is something so correct and profoundly correct about relations, uh, race relations, and just generally human relations. Uh, in a, I wonder if you have seen, um, and, and I think it's available on C-SPAN, and it would take me some time to find it, but uh, Justice Souter 
in one of his few public speeches uh, at a, a, a program about American history uh, late in his career. Might, it might be after he stepped down, actually. Um, but if not, then close in time to when he stepped down. He gave this speech at a, maybe it was a National Endowment of the Humanities program or something like that. Have mm-hmm. you seen this thing? No, I, I don't think I have. It's, um, it's, a, it's his discussion about um, the Plessy decision in time and history and how it, what it's like to think as a person of today about being a person of today in the Plessy decision. Yeah, I actually want so to. It's quite interesting. So after I, I, I do want to say I have not seen. So that. I should dig that out and so that we could link it in the show notes. You should people. definitely. And, it's quite fascinating. But also in a future episode, I kind of want to have you know we can explore this with a guest who's an expert in in um, equal protection or in or in race and the law, and can follow up on this because I thought this episode and the one when we talk about your opinion, I think we should talk just about the opinion. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, so I'm, I'm intentionally. He like, was just sharing his reflection on what you're, uh, which on is the about what you, exactly yeah. right. Yeah, we'll link it up. And and uh, so after I've seen it, obviously it's going to be the time to talk about that. But uh, but maybe we could do that in that episode as well. Yeah. Did you read the opinion again? Uh, let me let me just say this for the listeners. Uh, now is a good time to hit pause. Read the opinion. <laughs> At least you know, there are parts you can skim. But it is uh, uh, pretty amazing. It's pretty pretty accessible. There are parts which may be less accessible. Less accessible. Some if of the language is a little arcane. Uh, it's both because it's written more than a century ago, and so the style of the writing is a little different. Uh, some of the language is is uh, technical, uh, although there's not a whole lot of that. Uh, but yeah, I did read. I did read it very quickly yesterday, knowing that we were going to talk about it today. Okay. Um, general thoughts. <laughs> general thoughts of mine. Yes. Uh, I, I take it you disagree with the decision. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to come out in favor of Plessy? Mm, no. no. Um, I think it is, um, well, the statute in question which is a Louisiana state statute uh, that requires of uh, railroads, for example, which is, I think, who was involved in the case itself. Although the, I don't think it applied. Was it only to railroads or was it a public conveyances generally? Uh, I think it was passen- just passenger railways. Passenger rail. Um, so the railroad companies have to provide these separate cars or a partitioned car if they have only one passenger car. Yeah, you can get away with putting up some kind of divider. Right. Some kind of partition. Uh, yeah. And and the the statute requires the train companies to do this, in, in addition to requiring the private parties who sit in the train to be in the right car. It requires the conductors in the train to put people in the right cars uh, and fines the train companies, uh, uh, punishes conductors' uh, misconduct. Uh, so it's it's interesting. When you start reading this thing, you're thinking, who is this really – directed to like how many train companies don't want to follow this rule how many do want to follow the rule are train companies the ones who asked for the statute well this is so that because it was something they wanted to do but felt like maybe they get in trouble for doing it immunizes some people against liability in the statute so when you start just reading the statute which is how the opinion begins right it says here's the statute that we're talking about 1890 statute by the way 1890 25 years after the end of the civil war 
Yes, and the case itself is like 1898 or something like that. 96, I think. 1896. Yeah. So, so uh, the statute's been in place for some years. Not a whole lot. Not 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 a whole lot of time, but some time. And uh, and you have the uh, you know Homer Plessy who has a, from the look of the opinion um, had one black great grandparent and seven white great grandparents. Right. That's what's suggested. It's, I think there's a Creole origin, but ah. that's right. And he, they, they use the phrase octoroon, I think. It, Ooh, I point. remember the phrase one eighth, but yeah, one um, eighth, yeah. Which I just sort of worked back into great grandparents. But yeah. Um, so it's just a, and he, so he's not in the, he doesn't want to go sit in the other car. And, um, well, actually, let me break in because, uh, there's there's a little bit of background. We'll put up the Wikipedia page. There are a couple other pages where you can kind of quickly get a little bit about the history. He was an early Rosa Parks mm. um, because construct Reconstruction had basically just fallen apart, and the s- Southern states are now starting to kind of reassert racial control. Right? I mean, very right after the Civil War, you had uh, in the South um, black legislators. Sure. Right. Uh, you're not going to get a lot of those for a long time. Uh, after Reconstruction ends, yeah, and and so now at 1890, the state's starting to say, you know what, we, we, we we're seeing the first inklings, and and here's a reason to have a, a good uh, legal historian on about this. But it seems as though we're seeing some of the first inklings of the apartheid structures uh, being built. Yes, and this is an apartheid statute for yes. railway cars, literally. Uh, exactly. Yeah, a, a, a forced apartness, which is all apartheid means. Yeah. And there was a there was a um, and they had a French name for it in Louisiana, but some kind of citizens committee, um, which was fighting these new apartheid laws, mm. and got uh, Pl- uh, Plessy um, to go on the train, and I think even arranged for the detective to arrest him. They wanted to be sure that he was arrested for breaking this law and no other. Right, so mm. they want to make sure they wanted to manage the arrest in such a way that he couldn't be charged with resisting arrest or ah. these other trumped up charges. Right, so he goes on to the train, is told by the conductor to go to the uh, African American car, uh, refuses to do so. So, it's, you know, it's Rosa Parks, right? right? Um, and, and by so doing, has now violated the statute. The act of being there and refusing to move is a violation of the statute. That's right. And and the statute requires, as you as you went through, and I wanted to make sure we stress this, this the statute in Plessy versus Ferguson put mandates on the railroad company, the railway, passenger railway companies. You've got to provide for these physical things, these right. dividers, separate cars, and on the conductors and people who work, the officers of the, of the company, to direct people to the right places according to race. In other words, they have a legal obligation to insist on right seating according to race. And then the obligation on the passenger is to comply right. with the seating arrangements dictated by the officers. And so it's weird because if you read the statute, at least as I read it, and I didn't read the whole statute, just what was exerted in, in the case, it seems as though if the conductor fails to direct you to the right seat, you're, un- you're not under an obligation to find the right car on your own. It, in any event, it leads to all kinds of complexities in these cases of like like most of us who have mixed race heritage, at least uh, some at some kind, level, at some of, level, right? <laughs> um, and and uh, you know any apartheid system is any racial apartheid system is going to have to deal with that bit of complexity. And so there's you know companies don't want to be regulated in that way, and you know it's it's it, it there's a little bit of a difficulty there, um, which is an odd one to talk about, right? Because it just feels 
you start talking in, in terms of fractions of blood and all kinds yeah. of weirdness and you can almost imagine a you can almost imagine a and a and i don't know anything about the history of how this statute specifically came to be in louisiana at that place and time in this form but you could almost imagine train companies that wanted to conduct themselves in this way uh but didn't want other train company competitors to be able to not conduct themselves in this way and therefore run cheaper railroads. Yeah. And that is to make sure that everyone had this as a cost of doing business because it's what you wanted to do as the owner of the rail company. You might want the state to enforce it as a minimum. Well, and there had been... So no one else could avoid the expense. You'd have to have the conductors that that do this. You'd have to have the cars, et cetera, et cetera. There's some interesting work in in about common carrier regulations and public accommodations before the Jim Crow era mm. where there was a sense uh, there was in, there was in, in some jurisdictions a requirement um, reasonably to accommodate people in your public accommodations of course right and so you couldn't just turn away people arbitrarily right that's the common carriage tradition from and, England. and a lot of and in a lot of courts after the Civil War uh, that started to change. That old common law rule started to change. Now, this is debated a little bit. I do all this in my property class, and there yeah. are cases each way. Uh, but there's at least you know some evidence that there were courts which said, you know what, you can turn, you know, unless you are truly one of these common common carrier things, uh, uh, y- you can do whatever you like in terms of admitting people or not. And so, one way of viewing statutes like this might be that it kind of backs up the. Um, the right of even a true common carrier and what is more of a common carrier than a passenger railway, right? right? Uh, to discriminate in a way which you might think would otherwise be incompatible with uh, a reasonable accommodation standard or something like that. Right. And it's certainly the statute certainly cuts off any claim that uh, someone who wants to ride in the train and gets bounced out of the train might have a common law cause of action against the train company. And it certainly ends that. Right, because yeah. the, the train companies being instructed quite explicitly, uh, and and otherwise immunized. Right, this is you have to do this, and doing this is not a problem. Let, let's let me just set up the. Oh, so you when you start else? reading yeah. the opinion, it's you you're brought, you're drawn into for a modern reader. You start reading this thing, and it feels like you're walking into a funhouse because <laughs> this is not our world anymore. Right. Um. So it's like, wow, this is bizarre. What's going to happen? It's, I think it's so easy and, and frankly dangerous to forget just how pervasive this apartheid sensibility was. In, and how backed up it was by America. the state. I mean, these, are, these yeah. are statutes directing people how to conduct private business in quite detail. Which, as we'll see, the court will argue, are, are uh, reflective of the sensibility of an awful lot of people at that time. Correct. Um, even the dissenting justice in this case. Yes, fair enough. 13th and 14th Amendments. These are the main weapons which are hurled by Plessy at this statute. So the 13th Amendment outlaws slavery. It says, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So you can make a prisoner do labor by that exception. Right. Uh, but other than that, no. Other than that, no. And and involuntary servitude was drawn broadly enough to capture a lot of slave-like relationships. Right. 
And it's interesting. The 13th Amendment is one of the only, I'm trying to think of what the other one is, but one of the only bits of the Constitution which uh, regulates directly private conduct. Yeah, and just says it shall not exist, right? Shall not exist. Isn't that, that's the phrase, right? uh, Yes, neither blah, 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 nor blah, 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 shall exist. So shall not exist is is the phrasing. Exactly right. So it's not only regulating this private matter, it is declaring it to be non-existent. This thing shall not be. So the, that's the, pretty dramatic. I agree. It the, doesn't. The Constitution doesn't anywhere else say this thing shall not be. It says you know you can do that power. You can exercise that power. You over there, you can exercise that power. A, a power we haven't allocated remains in the states or the people thereof. That's the Tenth Amendment, right? So it's you know a lot of it is just arranging deck chairs in your. It's like arranging furniture in your house, right? This is saying this thing shall not be in your house. <laughs> That's, that's pretty, right. That's interesting. Yes, it's not about the structure of any governmental entities. It's not about solving a coordination problem. It isn't about protecting individuals from government overreach. It's about directly shaping society at even a private level. Yeah. And uh, so it's a dramatic statement was, that, you know, to get it through, you know, even after this, even uh, in the dying uh, days of the Civil War and after it was not a sure thing that it would be. Um, uh, part of the Constitution. There was a lot of arm twisting and bribery and everything else to get it through. Right. Uh, just like the Fourteenth Amendment. The subject of a recent Spielberg film was it not? I think it was the Fourteenth Amendment, but same thing. Okay, same thing. Uh, so the, the majority doesn't think much of the argument that this violates the Thirteenth Amendment. No, it, it says it's it's. It, they say it's too clear for argument that this fails. Uh, and and the basic form of the majority's argument is to say that there's a slippery slope here. Look if. If this kind, if this law, which works what you say is a discrimination, is is uh, void because it is ba- because it uh, is a form of involuntary servitude, that's a slippery slope we don't want to go down. Right. Because then, any time anybody discriminates on the basis of race, you could say that there's a constitutional command not to, and it would dramatically enhance the judicial role in shaping private relations. Yeah, and forcing someone to sit in a car of a railroad, of a railway, that they don't want to sit in, um, although you can imagine the English language being used in such a way that either through a metaphor or 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 even in some attenuated literal sense, you, the phrase servitude or involuntary servitude could be used for that. That's not probably what most people would mean most of the time using that phrase well i think but for the existence of the 14th amendment which deals much more directly with equality due process basic liberties uh it would be there would be more pressure on the 13th amendment to handle efforts by the state to extend what people call the badges of slavery right Right. to mark you as being in a servile state. And I can tell you that because you can't ride in our cars. Everything about you is servant-like. But, but even there, you'd have the question about whether whether that is itself servitude. That I'm, I'm not doing any work for you. I'm you're, you, you are requiring me as a condition of selling me a ticket for this train ride. You're requiring that I sit in that car, not that car. I'm not serving you. I'm being made to wear, argue, arguably, I'm being made to wear a badge of slavery Right, but I'm not being enslaved, it, and so the, the right. What as I'm you saying say, is the that, pressure right. yeah. would, that would exist if there weren't other means for dealing with the issue is an interesting question. And we'll get to this with Harlan's distinction, or Harlan's exploration of, of 
different ways of thinking about what the 14th Amendment is about. But I think there would be pressure on laws like this uh, to say, under the 13th Amendment, that they promote the idea of a servile class, right? That they are all about stamping a whole class of people as being in a condition of underlingness, you know, servitude. Right. And that you Which might they clearly do, and I you mean, might look at the history of the Thirteenth Amendment under those circumstances and see that there really was an attempt to eliminate the slave class from American society. Yes, right. Uh, you know, the majority doesn't buy that. They take a much more literal reading of the Thirteenth Amendment here, and instead, really, I think you know, cognize this claim as a Fourteenth Amendment claim. Yeah, and the Fourteenth Amendment does a whole lot of stuff. Yeah, um, it makes. Uh, it, you know, it creates kind of the additions of citizenship in the United States. It gives it to basically everybody who lives here, uh, who was born here, um, or naturalized here. So all the freed slaves are now citizens of the United States. Uh, I'm not going to go into all of that. I don't, you know, unless you have something to say about that part of it. Nope. Uh, I, well, let me, let me, let me, should I read this? Apparently. I think the favorite part of the show that people have is when I read things. Cool. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. Here's the thing. Now, that's that, not the most scintillating part, but it is an important part. Yeah. Um, no doubt our listeners have inferred that you're reading something that's either in or related to the opinion in Plessy versus Ferguson. Um, but you didn't actually say before you started reading what it is you're reading. That's 14th Amendment. Ah, okay. Thank you. One section of the 14th Amendment. Cool. Which one? I think this is the first. Excellent. It's helpful for people who want to follow along through a link. Well, I'm going to... Um, it's all linked up. People are and, just following along. And the now they know what to point to. Oh, boy. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. All right now, I'm still on the same... There's a semicolon. I'm going to stop there just to say that you would think that does a whole hell of a lot, right? Yeah. You would think that that protects the civil rights of U.S. citizens. Yeah. Right? No state can... Uh, uh, can can do anything in law that abridges the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States. Boom! Don't violate my citizen my civil rights. And then uh, around um, the, um, shortly after uh, these uh, the Fourteenth Amendment was ratified, the Supreme Court came along and said, "You know what? That doesn't really mean anything." <laughs> In the slaughterhouse cases, in okay. Slaughterhouse cases. Um, and and if the slaughterhouse cases happen to be your favorite cases or case joe we'll talk more about it but right now i'm going to skip over it and just say that's a very promising bit of constitutional text uh which was found not to mean anything by the supreme court another case from louisiana if memory serves i think so they're butchers louisiana butchers nor shall any state deprive any person of life liberty or property without due process of law that's what follows directly after the Privileges and Immunities Clause. Okay. Now you would say, well, that, that looks like the Fifth Amendment. Right. Deprivations of life, liberty, or property. Yeah, Congress without can't. Without due process. Yeah, Congress can't do that. States can't do it either. Now states can't do it either. And here's a bit of text that allowed, after the slaughterhouse cases, eventually the court to get back on the right track and start to see the 14th Amendment as giving to people within states all of the rights under the bill of rights, but as against the state. So when the bill of rights were first enacted, they were limitations on what Congress can do. And by extension, maybe what the federal government could do more generally, they were found 
not to, actually in a taking, famous takings case, establish this, they were found not to apply against states. So if a state wanted to abridge your freedom of speech, as many southern states did, you know, right. banning political parties and things in the run-up to uh, the Civil War, uh, that was fine. Is that Barron against Baltimore? Yeah, that's the, uh, yeah. And there saying, were a lot of... Saying these don't apply as against state governments yeah. rather than the national And government. there's lots of great evidence about how a lot of the for, the framers of the 14th Amendment who I like to call the reframers of the Constitution because they fundamentally transformed it. Uh, a lot of them knew that case and wanted it overturned, right? They wanted they wanted the 14th Amendment to serve the purpose of overturning that case. Um, I think they're called Barian Contrarians. But, uh, <laughs> so, Let's so, call them the framers and the first batch the blamers. <laughs> the blamees, I think. They're being blamed, <laughs> right, for setting up the conditions of the Civil War, right? right. The seeds were sown. Good point. Um Okay, so so here we have text which eventually was used by the court to say, okay, so privileges and immunities, that doesn't guarantee the, the right to free speech against a state, right? Because we've decided the slaughterhouse cases in which we kind of screwed up and, and didn't do that. But now through uh, the due process clause, well, what, what does that mean? Can a state violate your right to free speech under the, uh, uh, despite these words about due process? The answer the court came up with was no, that that kind of encompasses kind of the uh, fundamental li- fun- fundamental rights guaranteed in a system of ordered liberty or something to that yeah. effect. Okay, so uh, so that's maybe one hat that Plessy could have, uh, uh, did I say one hat? One hook on which Plessy could have hung his hat in this case, right? That this, this racially segregated uh, train uh, re- regulation, this, this regulation uh, 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 requiring segregation. It's a segregation. deprivation of liberty without due process. Exactly, yeah. Uh, and then finally, nor deny, so this is nor shall any state deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And there it is, Joe. That last bit is, boy, that's tough. It's tough to figure out what it means. It's, I don't want to say the most. I mean, we're always driven to, at least I am, to hyperbole a little bit. But it mm. certainly is. It certainly does provoke a myriad of puzzles mm. let me just uh, and, and, and quick aside footnote do you think a murder statute offends the equal protection clause joe uh and by murder statute i assume you're referring to a statutory prohibition on the murdering of one human by another human yes uh no i don't think it uh is treating two similarly situated people differently uh, in an improper way. Oh, and there we go. Improper way. Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, I, there were problems long before I got to that phrase. Yeah, I know. I know. Similarly, <laughs> si- similarly situated. And, yeah. You the really fact can't is, start speaking without is, saying loaded right. things. The fact is the statute treats murderers differently than non-murderers, right? Of course. It makes as it should. As Since a murderer has done something quite so, different from non-murderers. This is the crazy thing about this clause, that it has to be right, and yet it is clearly clearly not self-explanatory and if and couldn't be taken literally no because that's all law would the cease fundamental to thing law does is to distinguish things right it by you know it, a statute which didn't treat anybody unequally would not even be a statute you can't even imagine such a thing right for a, for a homelier example uh, the uh, sherman act uh, section one of the sherman act uh, bars restraints of trade uh, and if that were taken literally uh it would outlaw all contracts since contracts restrain trade. Right. Uh, so what the Supreme Court quite sensibly 
did was say, well, what's in what what's meant here? The words, what the the meaning of the words that are here is that unreasonable restraints of trade are barred. And when we unpack the meaning of unreasonable, we get to the interesting things that are worth prohibiting. Well, things so like that, price fixing and right. the like. So that's what we, you know, that's... that's so you got to do something like that here. A, a huge chunk of the project of the 20th century, I think, was elaborating uh, the legal project in, uh, in terms of these amendments, was to elaborate what is meant by equality. And we've said on this show before, you know, that I've got a conception that... Um, that there's a certain required equivalence of treatment among the community of equals, where the community of equals is a, are, are a whole bunch of different categories, right, which have to be treated as as of equal uh, merit. And and what that what constitutes that community of equals is a political question. In what way are you using the word political in that sentence? I, in a very broad sense, that it that it involves questions of what we want to do. We as a pol- as a polity, right. as a community of people who are governing ourselves, right? Exactly right. Uh, and 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 if you're looking at the text itself and trying to figure out what equal protection means, you're there's you're not going to do that. You no, know, you could look up those words in fifty dictionaries, each one of right. them, in fifty different dictionaries, um, and you would learn a lot. But you wouldn't be a whole lot closer to knowing what to do. No, you might, even be, further, claims, might even be further away. Because you might see, be. Yeah. But, but you, you, you certainly won't be a whole lot closer to figuring out what to do. So let me just let me quickly kind of say what the majority says in this case, because uh, I want to get to Harlan's dissent. Yeah, why is this your favorite opinion? Well, it, because of what Harlan says. Ah. But first we have to set up what the this majority a, says. This is a cheat in a way. Why? Because you didn't pick your favorite opinion. You picked your favorite dissent. Yeah. And so a person could think you meant majority opinion. This is my favorite case. Okay. An infamous case. I do not celebrate it as a case. Okay. Do you understand what I mean? I do. You're not celebrating the statute that existed. You're not celebrating the fact that the Supreme Court held that it was consistent with the 14th Amendment or the 13th Amendment. Right. Um, Couldn't be further away from celebration. You're not celebrating the era that it reflected. No. No. As a statute or as a holding of the court? I'm not even celebrating Harlan as a hero in this no. case. That's the thing. It, but it is unbelievably interesting and, and shows, I think, our, you know, it, on display our, our sins and our potential at the same time in a, in a very raw way. So let's talk about our sins a little bit here, okay? Because the first thing the majority does is to um, talk about equality in a certain way. And the first thing they do is they say, um, there's a difference between equality before the law, or political, and, and then what they call political equality, and social equality. Those are different things. And laws that, in, uh, that, laws that enforce separation do not imply inferiority in a legal sense. Now, it seems to me, reading the opinion, that one reason why the court says that... Mm-hmm is that it knows one of the things it has to reckon with is that it has already, in an earlier case, held that prohibiting black people from being on juries right. uh, is a violation of this clause. Right. So they have to, if they're not prepared to say that this train car statute, the train car separation statute is a violation, but the jury service prohibition was a violation they have to be able to explain those two outcomes 
right. under the text. And so what, this distinction is part of making that explanation, is it not? And I think, yes. And I, and I think that this... Because they talk about Strouder right. in this... They do. In this portion of the opinion. They do. And they say that, um, and, and they say that, that idea is about giving people equality before the law. As opposed you can't, to social equality. Exactly. Social equality is what happens out in the world. And we're not going to control what happens out in the world. We can't make people get together. We can't solve all of, uh, uh, we, we, we can't, um, and I don't even know if they want to, but they're living in a world where people have, a, I think, ideas about what is the proper interaction among the races. Yes. And a race is a huge deal. You know, it's a, it's a big deal, right? It is, it's, it's even hard, you know, even, even for those of us today who say that people forget or, or fail to see you know, the, the role of race in society today, uh, and that's a problem. Back then, it was not hard to see the role of race because <laughs> no. everybody internalized it right. very deeply. Yes. And it was on the, it, internalized is maybe the wrong word, because it was on the surface of everything, right? Um, and, and so the, the court White finds supremacy itself... supremacy was the water in which they swam, right. these fish right. that we're talking about. And no one questions that here. Of course not. And... Why would they? It's so, the world they're living in. Part of it is figuring out what the law should be in a world in which there are all kinds of instances of discrimination that everybody just accepts right? with an of course kind of attitude. And they actually list those. They, they describe say, them, yeah. They, and they say, look, you know, if of course there's a difference between this technical legal conception of equality, which is required, which maybe is the equal right to run for office, to vote, to serve on a jury, to an equal right to the maybe the machinery of government— it's a very different thing, though, to claim an equal right to participate in social activities. And the state may even be able to say you can't participate in the same social activities. And they're doing that in an environment in which all of these things are taken for granted. And they go through them, right? There's universal acceptance, they say, of all of these different um, uh, forms of segregation, namely schools. So one of the big examples is schools. Uh, segregated schools are, of course, constitutional. Like that's so one of the reasons Plessy is one of the reasons Plessy has to lose. They say is because of course segregated schools are constitutional, as every court has found. Yeah, they and go who on do they some cite for that? About this. And who do they cite for that? They say even and, and they use kind of polite language for this, but right. like even um, even in jurisdictions where they're friendly to blacks, unlike the in the South, right? Uh, they recognize the importance of this form of segregation, and so they cite a Massachusetts case. Right. This right, and in Massachusetts, and 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 here's where you can kind of, if you work hard, kind of try to get into the psychology of people at that time, um, where the thinking was it was okay to segregate in school because well, we make all kinds of distinctions there along what we conceive of to be socially relevant criteria, like age, like age. Between the sexes, you know, there are girls' schools and boys' schools, and that was, you know, be a long time before anybody questioned questioned that. Um, and and, and even, even today, like, there's some dispute about what the right answer is on that dimension. Sure. Um, and different abilities. Well, think about even today. Nobody even questions the fact that, uh, say, to get into where we teach, the University of Georgia, you have to have certain test scores. You don't have to. You know, maybe you can make up for it on some other dimension. Right. But there are criteria that a lot of people cannot meet. Right. There are, select, quote, selectivity criteria. Right. And they, you know, that certainly IQ is correlated. Not only do we to not some extent it, hard work. Yeah, schools are valorized. That's right. According to their quote selectivity, the num the the ratio of the people who get in to the people who apply. The smaller that number is, right, the happier some people are in some ranking systems. Yeah. 
And there's a lot of, you know, I mean, there's a lot of debate about how schools should do that selection process because maybe you're missing a lot of kids who aren't of, you know, uh, who don't go to schools where they can pay a lot of money for good guidance counselors and do all this other stuff, right? So right. Uh, uh, there's, um, how should I say, uh, there's an assumption that it's a good thing that we are discriminatory in going to school because in picking people to go to a particular school because we think education works better yeah. under certain criteria. Right. And they thought that then with race. Yeah. That's making distinctions is a good idea. Here's a distinction that's being made and it's made because it's a, it's also a good idea. Yeah. So too laws against intermarriage of the races as they call it. Yes. Um, and why do they raise this one? Because no one questions that those are constitutional, they, they think. And I don't know at the time whether there were people agitating against these laws. Or contrary-wise, they're flagging, look, if we say Plessy wins, here's the line of people who we're going to have to say next, yeah. they win too. Here are all the dominoes. And they're not prepared to do that, in part because they think how shocking it would be if everyone realized... It means that <laughs> the Fourteenth Amendment requires that. Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know it would require that. Um, and they say that you know, while it is true, and they use this you know quaint idea of freedom of contract. Um, I say quaint. We can get into. There's some serious scholars today who are pushing on re- rejuvenating this, and we can talk about that in another episode. But they say, in a technical sense, laws that prohibit intermarriage of the races may be a constraint on freedom of contract, but. They've been universally accepted as okay. So there's this idea of universal acceptance of legal segregation, laws which impose segregation in a whole bunch of areas. And we are, it's not our role fundamentally to transform society, they say. Um, and so. And they can sum that up with this social versus political distinction. There's this parade of horribles that the court responds to. So if we rule for Plessy, you know, uh, rule against Plessy. Well, Plessy and and his lawyers say, well, what's to stop a state from having separate cars? Uh, People have to ride in separate cars if they have separate hair colors or different hair colors, right? Uh, Aliens ride in one car. These are, you know, uh, 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 illegal aliens or maybe legal aliens, whatever. Just immigrants. Just immigrants. Uh, Racially segregated sidewalks. Um, What if we make people paint their houses according to the color of their skin? Like it it raises all these things which are truly weird. Um, And they say, no, 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 no. All exercises of legislative power are subject to the constraint of reasonableness and here's where this bit of this case fits in to another big debate from from that that extended basically from this period until the new deal of how aggressively the court should review just general acts of legislation yes and this court saying don't worry we look pretty closely at uh, we don't let unreasonable laws go into effect right if we took a very hands-off attitude toward legislation, yeah, we might have a problem. But don't worry, we won't do that. All these laws don't seem like they uh, they would uh, comply with our sense of reasonableness. They say the legislature is at liberty to act with reference to the established usages, customs, and traditions of the people, and with a view to the promotion of their comfort and the preservation of the public peace and good order. And that's really the heart of it, isn't it? What's going on with the majority? Yeah, the the... The, the social uh, inequality that is being reinforced by the statute is a pervasive phenomenon in the society that passed the statute. Right. So it's not unreasonable. It's reasonable. It, it, it really captures for the people of Louisiana 
how they have been living and want to live. Yeah, the the most charitable understanding of this theory of judicial review that we're going to look carefully at a law which uh, which the legislature passes and and look at the policies and decide for ourselves whether it should be constitutional based on our sense of policy. The most charitable reading of that is that maybe we're only looking for true democratic acceptance and we're trying to filter out laws which don't further the public interest and are therefore likely not to be the result of good democratic process. But that anticipates kind of a more legal process view of what's going on. I don't yeah. think they had that in mind. Agreed. Um, but it is, you know, a more charitable way. Last thing on the majority opinion, Joe, because this gets at the heart of it. They say, we consider the underlying fallacy of the plaintiff's argument to consist in the assumption that the enforced separation of the two races stamps the colored race with a badge of inferiority. If this, is, if this be so, it is not by reason of anything found in the act, but solely because the colored race chooses to put that construction upon it. And then they go into talking about, uh, you know, it may happen as it has in the past that there will be blacks elected to office and maybe they'll be the majority at some time and the whites wouldn't uh, accept uh, a stamp of inferiority from that, et cetera, et cetera. And they conclude if the two races are to meet upon terms of social equality, this is as distinct from legal or political equality, it must be the result of natural affinities a mutual appreciation of each other's merits and a voluntary consent of individuals. Now, what's interesting to me about these two things side by side is that they are quite obviously contradictory. Absolutely, right. That to say that it doesn't put a badge of inferiority and that if it does, it's only because you're perceiving it that way. Right. To follow that up by saying, and anyway, if there's going to be equality, it's because people have to want it, right? Right. Well, wait a minute, you just told me there wasn't you just told me there was equality in the sense that you didn't mean for me to infer that I wasn't equal to you by putting this requirement on me. Right. There's no badge of inferiority. Well, is there or isn't there? Because right next, right next to each other are two statements. It's very hard to square those two things. Right. Seems to me. A, a big like hell. Yes, you are putting a badge of inferiority right. on me. You're just saying it in the very next sentence, the very next paragraph. And, and, you know, these days in constitutional law, I think, um, because of the kind of classificationist approach that is used for equal protection, we're, 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 uh, the court is driven to see any law that distinguishes based on race at all as, as highly suspect and problematic. But for a long time, from this opinion up to, you know, Loving versus Virginia, if you listen to the oral argument there, a lot of the argument was concerned with figuring out whether the motive was white supremacy. If the, mo- if the motive is to encourage supremacy, then there's a problem with the law, right? Um, and, and, and indeed, there were, you know, there's a lot of effort towards showing that the anti-miscegenation laws, the laws prohibiting intermar- intermarriage of the races in those cases, were about promoting white supremacy. You know? Sure. Um, yes, but it also just seems wrong, right? Because uh, how are people voluntarily going to um, uh, appreciate each other's merits if they can't sit next to each other on the train? And they can't sit next to each other on the train, not because they don't choose to do so, but because the law says they cannot. Yeah, for example, the law doesn't say you have to ask everyone in the rail car whether they th- would like to sit where they are right now or would like to sit somewhere else. Right. Uh, no, even if everyone wanted to be in a different seat, you couldn't let them be. The train company itself is bound by the statute. Yeah. Not just the passengers. Right. So... It seems self-refuting in a lot of ways. Really profoundly. Right. <laughs> I mean, e- even if you have this racialist attitude and you take a, you take a particularly dim or, or narrow view of equal protection, 
because as we discussed earlier, you've got to take some view of equal protection. It is not self-defining. So you could understand someone who takes a very narrow view. It's hard in a case involving race discrimination in a state statute uh, to say that when you know that the very reason for the equal protection clause, right, as against the 13th Amendment, which banned slavery, was to guarantee some kind of equality to the former slaves. And I would have thought... Whatever else it means. And I would have thought it would have been more coherent for the court to say uh, that uh, it doesn't, that the statute, the requirement embodied in the statute that you sit in a different rail car uh, may very well be, and in fact, it does seem to uh, stamp you with a badge of social inferiority. Yeah. But it doesn't stamp you with a badge of political inferiority. You still get to be on a jury, still get to run for office. And this clause isn't directed at solving that problem, as we said just a moment ago. Right. So if you're going to make this distinction between social and and uh, political equality, follow it down the line. Here they seem to want to soften the blow by saying, and anyway, it doesn't really mean that you're not socially equal. Right. Um. And by the way, if people do want to be socially equal, they have to decide that for themselves. Right. But they have to decide. Which you wouldn't have brought up if you didn't think (laughs) that this statute actually does stamp you as socially inferior. Yeah. So there's a very weird uh, discomfort with their own assessment somehow. Uh, And maybe they're uncomfortable because they know they're going to that they are getting blasted by uh, Harlan the Elder. Harlan the Elder. Is your dog named after Harlan the Elder? No. Or Harlan the Younger. Uh, these are two uh, labels that uh, law nerds use to refer to. The two justices, John Marshall Harlan, one of whom was the grandfather of the other. Uh, and we're talking today about the John Marshall Harlan the Elder, mm-hmm. um, who served in the, in the, uh, in the 1800s. Uh, his grandson would serve you know, in the uh, 50s and 60s and such. Uh, uh, my dog Harlan is named after Harlan Fisk Stone, who was a justice and then a, the chief justice. I got a nephew named Harlan. You what? I have a nephew named Harlan. Neat. Who is named after this Harlan. And we have a colleague. In part. We have a, a teaching colleague who's also named Harlan. Is it after this Harlan? I forget. I don't know who he's named after. He might be named he's after told me before. A, a family member. Yeah. Um, he, who knows? Or just because it's a great name. So do you know why I think this is such a great dissent? I've already said it, it's got so many contradictions in it, right? Um, but it sees a lot and, and, and it starts off, I mean, I'm going to skip over a few of the things that it starts off with that we could talk for a long time about it. But um, the first kind of directly responsive thing that he does in this opinion is to launch with kind of a colorblind theory, which is a, a pretty kind of obvious conception of equality you might have that, you know, that equal protection doesn't necessarily mean equal in every possible respect. All laws make distinct distinctions, but at least among at least certain irrelevant status traits, right? Where relevance again is normatively loaded. Uh, it requires equality of treatment. Um, so we, 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 we got to set this up just a little bit more by yeah. saying that, um, uh, he, uh, is a Southerner from kentucky Mm -hmm. Uh, he's dissenting alone 
Right. That that is plain from the face of the of the document yes, itself. Right. right. So uh, so in this multi member court, this nine member court, um, and I think all nine of them participated. I think there was one that didn't. Oh, okay. So yeah. eight. Yeah. Um, he alone thinks the case should come out the other way, which is to say, he thinks the statute should be voided as unconstitutional, um, and he needs to explain why. Wants to explain why. And here's what he. And this is what he says. Um, so it's interesting because he's by himself. He's speaking only for, he's the only person he has to satisfy as he writes this opinion. He doesn't persuade anybody else on the court to join him. Right. But he believes that this is the right way to analyze it. And right. so he wants to explain why he thinks that's true. And, and he, you know, he starts in the, in the very beginning. So he's the, the overriding idea is that race discrimination cannot be an official policy of any arm of government. Race discrimination cannot be an official policy. He does say from the very beginning um, uh, uh, that um, uh, kind of private racial pre- prejudice, and, and, and he uses the word pride in one's race, is kind of the personal right of private citizens. Uh, and he even says every true man has pride of race. But that this like trading on one's pride of race and discriminating based on race, that these are purely the province of private interactions and can form no part of public policy. He, th- he sees that as the core meaning of the 14th Amendment, that it comes out of a desire to make equal in all relevant connections with government uh, the, the former slaves. Equality may mean much more than that. It may encompass more than racial equality. Sure. Sure. But it at least, you know, it at least covers that. So he takes a very realist understanding of what this was, what this uh, statute was trying to do, right? Um, that although on its surface it appears this is the idea of separate but equal is inherently unequal, that's in this opinion, really. It's in this dissenting opinion, right? That, uh, and he says the thing to accomplish was, under the guise of giving equal accommodation for whites and blacks, to compel the latter to keep to themselves while traveling on railroad passenger coaches. No one would be so wanting in candor as to assert the contrary, right? So he's saying this law is about white supremacy. Right. It is about holding down blacks. And he doesn't, he doesn't merely say that's what it's about. He says everyone knows that's everyone what knows it's about. What's up. And yeah. only a person who is dishonest would prevaricate about it. Right. Which is quite a thing to say about eight other people looking at you, disagreeing with right. you. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's exactly what they're saying. And, and they're prevaricating in exactly the way he says only a dishonest person would. Right. And and so that, that's but this is a different thing, right? So one theory is colorblindness. The government has to be colorblind, and he certainly says that, right? That this that that uh, distinctions on, based on color can't play any part of of our policy. And now he talks about laws which have as their motive white supremacy. So even so, he connects these two ideas in the very same portion of the opinion, right? So he says, there is no caste here. And in the very next sentence says, our constitution is colorblind. And those don't mean the same thing. Those don't mean the same thing at all. They're, they're two very, very different conceptions of racial equality. Because if you were, you, you wouldn't be able to, to, to continue with the, the metaphors, you wouldn't be able to detect whether or not a law was seeking to establish a caste if you were unable to see color right so the assertion that there is no caste here 
that that's the thing accomplished by the 14th Amendment, among other things. That's a thing accomplished by the 14th Amendment. To say there is no caste here, and that's what we're here to police. We, the court, as an enforcement mechanism, are here to make sure that that remains the case. Right. Um, and yet we cannot see when it could possibly exist. Well, that's weird to say, right? That's a bizarre statement to make. So what do you make of the fact that there's that contradiction right there? Well, I, I think he's... Because he's saying- I see it as a contradiction, too. I it's a contradiction, but not. I, th- I don't think he can even imagine laws which would be race conscious, but not have as their aim holding holding down one race. Right? That's so far from his understanding. I think that that a that a uh, a racial majority would have as its conscious object uh, a law which helped others based on their race. Right. Mm. So, you know, so this is obviously the distinction. But what's funny is what's funny is those freedmen's bureaus existed as in, in his own in his own history. Yeah. Uh, so there were actually were laws like that. Yeah, But that was based on condition of former servitude. That's true. Right. And which was perfectly correlated <laughs> with race. Right. But there was a there was a reason other than race. Right. To have those. Yes. Right. Uh, I guess strictly speaking, yes, but 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 because there were speaking. because there were black people who were not who were not former slaves. Yeah, that's true. They uh, didn't live in the South, but right. And um, I mean, yeah. there was a you know all of a sudden you have all of these freed slaves. You need some social mechanism to transition because um, these people have nothing, right? Uh, so so that makes sense. This is not a um, uh, it, it's. But yeah, he's in a situation where contemplating, like the focus on caste and the fact that the 14th Amendment is aimed at preventing the recreation in a new form of the caste of servitude, of there being a a second class of citizens who are not full citizens. Right. Um, the, the 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 world in which he's trying to imagine what that would be like, what's looming very large in in his field of vision, plainly in this case, is an an, an effort on the part of a white majority affirmatively to suppress and in that way continue to plunder from right black people. Yes, that's and what th- it's that's what's happening. And this is why he doesn't really distinguish very carefully between the Thirteenth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment. He sees them as working together right. to accomplish a certain purpose, right? And it's about completely expunging this idea of one race ex- continuing to expropriate another, to use it as a servile class. But it is interesting to think about how history might have played out differently if the sentence after the sentence "there is no caste here" yeah. <laughs> had not appeared in the opinion, right? Because this notion of colorblindness is one that, in our own parlance of today, and in continuing judicial debates and other b- debates about what to do, yeah, um, about things, pu- including public programs that m- make distinctions or make categorizations that are based on people's race, um, that that the colorblindness idea is 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 a big idea. Oh yeah, that's I would say. I would go so far as to say it's the dominant view. If you just ask, like any old person on the street, like what what role should race play in government decision making? You know, if you characterize that in a maybe better way, they would say race shouldn't matter. Race should not matter. I think the colorblindness is a, is a dominant view, right? 
And so when you try to explain like why government should sometimes be race conscious, or you try to argue that it should, you have to move from that conception of equality to a no caste equality, right? That and, and Harlan's opinion indicates that there are there was at least in one moment in time in one man's mind those two things could both. be together. <laughs> both they, and, they they talk those two ideas talk to each other. But see, colorblindness does the job in this case because here you're trying to you, you you need a conception of equality that will stop a state from forcibly keeping races separate. Right. Right. The, the other so you train conductor need to be blind to the color of the passengers. Right. And not try to separate them into separate cars. Right. And, and you know, who knows what he would have done if there were a rule which required the seating of a black man next to every white man. Right. Who I mean, knows what Harlan would have done. What Harlan would have done. Right. right. I mean, you know, that's a, you know, that's a completely separate thing, uh, which is not at all what was contemplated here. And it is not colorblind. Um, right. It's not anti. It's not pro caste. Maybe anti caste, right. but but weird, right? And, and certainly hard to see it as an effort to vindicate the interests of white supremacists, right? <laughs> which he which he clearly thinks this statute is designed yeah, to do. Yeah, but I think he would have a problem with it. So the other the other part of the uh, you know that, those are two contradictory ideas in the opinion, which don't contradict in this case, right? They're contradictory conceptions which converge on the same solution in this mm, case, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um. And so, you know, like with many judicial opinions, you lots of reasons for stuff. And, and if and if those reasons don't map onto different solutions, they can kind of be put together, right? right. There's not an obvious contradiction. Although equally, um, as is often true with judicial opinions, one can have the think the thought as you're sitting there reading, the more you talk, the more I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Because when they're, they're throwing lots of ideas in, because it's a very rich and complex thing, right? And they're trying right. to fully capture what the what their process is right um and that can lead to odd misunderstandings (laughs) or odd or fruitful concatenations of things but if you're in a world which is just marinating in white supremacy as he is right then the idea and there's a third idea in here and i want to introduce this at the same time of personal liberty Mm. the freedom of of a white man and a black man, I use you know men there intentionally in a way. The, the, the freedom of those two men to sit next to each other in a train car is being abrogated by this statute. Indeed. There's a kind of so there's a libertarian interest which is being attacked by this statute. In this in in that world where we're, again we're kind of marinating in white supremacy, all of these things are under attack. Personal liberty is under attack, right? The idea that government is, you know, the, the, the actual blindfold on the scales of justice, right? That, that the government is peeking to see what kind of people uh, uh, its laws are attaching to. Uh, and so, too, we understand that this is all about white supremacy. This is all about trying to make sure that blacks stay in their place. Those arguments converge in this opinion. They're very powerful, but they, di- but they diverge in other cases. Yeah, so this opinion isn't very helpful when you're trying to see what to do when those two ideas diverge rather than converge. I got a couple more things. A couple more things on this. Uh, and, and again, I urge everybody just to read the opinion because it is, it's I think, re- it's beautiful. Not, it's not long. It's not, it's not long. The dissent is not long. The majority opinion is not really that long either. You can yeah. kind of scan through that one. But And then I think at the beginning of this opinion, it, he does a lot of kind of state action, public-private stuff at the beginning, which is not necessarily totally relevant. Um, you can kind of skim over that. But there are, there are core passages of the opinion, which I could just read out in the podcast because I think they're just so beautiful. Um and interesting. Uh, but I, I want to highlight a couple of other things and, cool. and get your reaction to them. 
Uh, so the first, the, the other thing is here we see a salvo in this like legislature versus courts thing being lobbed, which we, we, again, we brought up in the majority opinion where they say, oh, don't worry, we're going to put, we're going to, we look at every law for reasonableness, right? So these worrying about laws which make people paint their houses the same color as their skin, that would never, there'd be, we would say that law is beyond the police power. It's beyond the basic power of, of state legislatures to enact. And Harlan says, whoa, whoa, I, I don't buy the general authority of courts to put reasonableness limitations on laws. We shouldn't be doing things that way. Um, and he even says there's a dangerous tendency in these latter days. Interesting phrase, isn't it? There's a dangerous ten- tendency in these latter days to enlarge the functions of the courts by means of judicial interference with the will of the people as expressed by the legislature. Right, so this is almost like they're legislate. There's this worry about legislating from the bench, this judicial activism language that seeps in here, which is if you're counting on courts to throw out the worst excesses of apartheid, um, that's dangerous, right? That's dangerous. Uh, <laughs> right. We, you know, there, we need to act according to principle, and namely constitutional principle. And once we start deciding willy nilly, and maybe not even willy nilly, but based on our own preferences. What kinds of racial policies are good ones and which don't make any sense? We've essentially usurped the legislature. So that's that's a kind of debate which I think modern listeners are well familiar with. Oh, I mean, sure. it keeps continues to be repeated. And Harlan is taking a side here, which won't be vindicated until the New Deal. Yeah, well, both actually, both views get vindicated. Both of Harlan's views, you mean? No, both view, both the majority. Oh, say, 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 say more. So, what do you mean? Well, the notion that general reasonableness review is appropriate for the judiciary uh, survives uh, the New Deal, survives in the New Deal and thereafter. Um, but it becomes extremely deferential. Right. So reasonableness isn't reasonableness with sharp teeth. It's reasonableness with barely any teeth. Yes, it's it's totally drained of all force. And so in that sense, both get vindicated. All right. Another thing he does is he compares the opinion to Dred Scott. So he says, look, there are all these principles which are uh, which point against doing this. Right? The very meaning of our Constitution, as it was reframed after the Civil War, points toward personal liberty. It points uh, toward eliminating caste systems, and it points toward government being ignorant of race, right? And those three things we've said are contradictory, but this case flunks all three of those kind of uh, directions or tests. Um, But worse than that, this decision is like Dred Scott in that it will kick off a lot of continued violence and dispute. Um, He says it will stimulate aggressions more or less brutal and irritating upon the admitted rights of colored citizens, but will encourage the belief that it is possible by means of state enactments to defeat the beneficent purposes which the people of the United States had in view when they adopted the recent amendments to the Constitution. And so he's saying what the court is doing is telling the states, yes, you know, you had to uh, you had to uh, ratify the 14th Amendment at the point at gunpoint to be readmitted to the union. But guess what? You get a second bite of the apple because you can eat away at these, uh, this new equality right through state enactments, so long as you do so artfully enough. Right. And this give is what he's saying is you've given the green light to Jim Crow, right? And uh, with the and and these by distinguishing between political and social equality, exactly, and, and allowing you to to uh, allowing states to enact statutes which create social inequality, 
right, right? to promote social inequality. That's the essence. Because of, if white people want to make an inference that they're inferior based on that, that's up to them. That's totally up to them. No, it's right. Not and so long doing. as it's sufficiently artful, everything's going to be okay. And then sure. there are a few losses in the effort to completely uh, uh to, in the march toward apartheid and racist zoning laws were struck down but people tried to find ways around that so up until the civil rights statutes brown versus and uh, uh, uh until brown versus board and then later the civil rights statutes uh this was the green light that allowed that to happen yeah um and he predicts violence because of that like the, this this will promote social conflict like even if you are a committed racist you should not want the world of conflict and violence that yeah, is going know, to occur yeah you know that's a hard one because i don't think i i don't i think it's uh, um i think i would have thought then and i kind of think now <laughs> that i don't i don't think uh, i don't think a world free of r- racial violence is an option uh given that a big portion of the white population was committed to white supremacy like there's going to be violence yeah. if the major if the if the case had come out the way he wanted it to yeah there would be violence there too so it, i don't feel like peace I, is I, it, I don't i don't think that's right i mean so two two points to that one i think he failed to apprehend just how effective nonviolence would be in the civil rights struggle Right? Well, that's yeah, that's a fair point. And and the kind of equality, which is not fully realized yet, but which we began to achieve with the civil rights movement, I think is much more meaningful um, because of the way in which it was achieved. Um, yes, uh, and interestingly, it's um, I think its effectiveness is bound up with the existence of mass media. Yeah, that didn't exist. That at didn't all. exist then. And right, yeah. So the, there are all kinds of reasons he could not uh, uh, foresee this. The other thing I would say is that one of the things that softens hatred of people who appear to be different than you is getting to know them and what this opinion allows is the state to prevent that process from happening yes right and so if this were illegal if it were illegal to keep the races apart and if the civil rights statute from the congress which came in right after the civil war had been upheld instead of struck down by the supreme court right and public accommodations could not discriminate on the basis of race right you know we that's it's hard to overstate how much the Supreme Court set back yes. race relations. Uh, Indeed. Uh, if that had happened and people got to know one another, it's hard to hate somebody that you've actually talked to a bit, um, unless they're a real jerk, I guess. But And, you know, this is sort of like the one good point Tom Friedman has ever made, um, the New York <laughs> Times columnist, um, in his book From Beirut to Jerusalem when he was, uh-huh. a, when he was a young reporter and uh, covering that part of the world. And it's the point about the fact that um, interactions in the marketplace, literally the marketplace, people yeah. buying and selling groceries and right. traveling in a, on the bus and doing right. all these things together and there's in the stores and et right. cetera. Um, it, people getting, people getting to know each other doesn't need to mean anything particularly deep. Right. For that knowledge to have the kind of salutary effect that right. you just described. Yeah. I think he was right about that. Well, this is, and this is the also and it would happen here too. Also, the gay rights movement, as we've sure. talked about before on the exactly. show and outside of the show. You know, you know, the once you realize that you know gay people, it's not even getting to know new gay people. It's once you realize that you do know them. the ones you've known all along. Yeah, they didn't have horns and they blah blah blah. Right. But if you're not separated from them, 
like why would you hate them because you otherwise like them and then and you, so the the salience of this apparent difference disappears over time as real connections are made and so there's something about like jamming people close enough together <laughs> so that they can actually interact and and maybe you know not forcing them into uh you know intimate relations and i don't mean by that sexual relations but even just like right. friendly relations but just forcing them together in the marketplace that may be enough you know uh and the, and this thing can have the, this thing has three uh, value, uh, three um, values in the, the sort of vari- mathematical variable sense, right? Uh, pr- uh, prohibited, permitted, required. Yeah. And what we're talking about is the difference between prohibited and permitted. No, what we're not talking about at all is required. Not required. This, that would be like forcing the white man the, to sit the, next this, to the black man yeah, the on, interest, on, the, on the train. The interesting sitting that. But you there's were also that you know this is Sunstein's nudge, right? There are also policies you can enact which encourage people. To meet up, so these yeah, yeah, have it's to do just with, not part of this case at all. No, but, it's not part of this case, but it's it's important in zoning and other areas where you can you can design laws in ways that encourage people not sure. to self segregate. But that's a much more difficult question. Um, uh, but I I think he doesn't. Uh, well, I I I think he does see that, or if he doesn't see it, it's certainly a response to to what you claim, right? That if they had ruled the other way, there would still be violence. There might be less. There might be less because people would get to know one another. Yes, and uh, that's true. There certainly and, would still be resistance. And what it highlights is that right. That what it highlights is that the very uh, the variable of time, right? Because in the short run versus long run. Yeah. Okay. Would what? there be more or less? And I think in the short run, I think it's hard to know which of the two opinions would be which of the two outcomes would be more likely to lead to unrest. Therefore, I don't know that it's all that good a basis on which to make a decision. Right. Short run reaction. But he throws it in there. And, right. and it's a very last point. Then we're going to, we're, we're done because we're running just a little bit late. Yes. Um, for some value of just a little and bit. And this is just our, this is just a very superficial in a way overview of, of Plessy versus Ferguson. Oh, we could talk for hours we, about this. We, and, and, and we'll have other people who are experts on and we can, we can go deeper into it. But I thought we should have at least one episode where we at least lay out kind of, the key contours of what I think it's your favorite uh, case. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a case which is maybe the most meaningful to me. Um, and we've talked about some of the contradictions and interesting parts of this case, which make it really interesting to me. Uh, but one last thought, one last thought. And, and this is one of the pieces of the opinion. We already talked about how Harlan shows a little bit of his kind of racial attitude early in the opinion, or at least reflects the racial attitudes of others to appeal to them. If you want to read it more charitably. Yeah. And then there's a the part of this opinion which talks about the quote unquote Chinaman. Mm. <laughs> uh, yes, and he says, you know, uh, the the equal protection clause, and I'm paraphrasing here, does say that the state can't, the state has to be colorblind. I can't, it can't, the state cannot use the machines of government to keep the black man down, right? It can't uh, keep whites and blacks apart through law. But you know what? And here I'll quote. There is a race so different from our own that we do not permit those belonging to it to become citizens of the United States. Persons belonging to it are, with few exceptions, absolutely excluded from our country. And then he goes into talking about people of Chinese descent. And he's accurately, I think, reflecting the law at that at that point in time. Yes. But to say that they're so different, that the law doesn't say that. That's his he's saying the, the law right. is as it is because they are so different from us. And if memory serves correctly, another descent of Harlan's, thank you Dorsey, another descent of Harlan's is a descent of his in a case that held that uh people born in the United States of uh 
Chinese nationals uh, were, could, could, could be and were citizens of the United States by virtue of that birth here. Mm-hmm. Uh, he dissented from that on the ground that although, uh, you know, natural born citizens, that phrase, which is also in the 14th Amendment, yeah. um, would seem to suggest <laughs> that they would be citizens by virtue of their birth in the United States. He's like, well, it can't possibly mean that for China people. Right. Because they're so different. Yeah. Um, this so. is one, it's inaccessible, right? I mean, this, uh, so this is the, I always He's say. He's complex like everybody else. You know, like, you, you, I mean, uh, culture shock that you get when you travel to another place, which is, I think, not nearly what it was uh, now with the internet. I mean, it, you know, uh, you, you yeah. can find it in some places still, but it, right. I think it's less and less over time. Yeah. Uh, but I think even back, you know, when you and I were young, you know, back in the 40s, Joe. No. <laughs> not quite <laughs> oh that long. God. Not that long ago. <laughs> When when culture shock would have been bigger, right, w- without the internet, right. um, I think it still would be nothing compared to going back to our own country a hundred years oh, yeah. earlier. Oh, that's uh, and this true. is a hundred and what hundred and twenty. No, it's that same. You know, the earlier. past really is a foreign country. It is so foreign. Like, how could you relate to these ideas? You know, it's hard. You know, people their generation divide, generational divides. People already have trouble relating to their parents and especially their grandparents on on kind of deeper levels of of meaning. Um, although some people, you know, some people seem to be able to kind of change with the times and learn new things. Other people become set in their ways, but certainly with people who are long dead, who, who lived through the civil war, who have views on, you know, whose, whose conceptions of race and their fellow citizens was, was, you know, was forged in that cauldron. Uh, those are going to be radically different people from us. They talk differently. You know, they certainly write differently, but their accents are all different. A lot of the characteristics of foreign countries, uh, of, of truly foreign in the, in the strongest use of that word foreign apply, I think to going back in a time machine and meeting our own forebears. Totally. So to contrast with the Chinaman, he says the destinies of the two races here, meaning white and black in this country are indissolubly linked together. And the interests of both require that the common government of all shall not permit the seeds of race hate to be planted under the sanction of law. That, that, and that part is truly beautiful. I think, I think it's truly beautiful. And all of these thoughts are in one person's head uh, at one time in this, as you pointed out early, uh, earlier, solo descent. I think it's remarkable. And says a lot about America, right? I mean, these contradictions we all have, yeah. uh, it exposes, uh, I think going back and reading an old case like that, it exposes the contingencies of our times, like all the things that we all take for granted, well, of course, this is okay, but that's not okay. And we don't even unpack some of these things that we think are not okay. Like 20 years ago, uh, among many heterosexuals, maybe 25, but even, I think even 20, 1994, uh, you know, you say, what do you think about gays? And they might think it's kind of icky, but, you know, do whatever you want to do in your own home kind of thing would be a dominant view uh, among Maybe yeah, more progressive yeah, people, but right. gay live, marriage, that's just weird. Yeah, right? live and let live is a, has a long, is a long American tradition of this, speaking of liberty. Yeah. Um, this notion of live and let live, private life versus public life. So sure. Live and let live, but, you know, don't come over to my house, don't shake my hand. Yeah. And don't ask, don't tell, which was passed in about 1992, if memory serves right. correctly. Um, it's sort of the perfect embodiment of that, <laughs> literally. Like, but, I don't want to know. Yeah. I understand it exists. Only a fool would deny it. But I'm not going to ask you, and I really don't want you to tell me. And do you think in 88, at the, height, at the height of the AIDS crisis, if it were possible to tell gay people apart from straight people externally that people wouldn't have wanted separate rail cars? 
Well, of course, some would because some said they yeah. did. Yeah. I mean, some people said it. Yeah. Some people argued for it. Right. For quarantines and camps and that kind of stuff. Sure, of course. And now it's totally different, right? And it's yeah. and, and part of that is maybe, remarkably so. Yeah, and and who knows? Like, what what is it today that we think of? What are what are the contradictions in our own thoughts today that will be just inexplicable in fifty or hundred yeah. years? The darker question is: in what what things will we repeat? Right, because that can happen too. Ah, you mean, because the whole narrative here, yeah, there's, there's this dominant narrative of, of American history, which is one of progress, you know, gradually that, which is a, a typical human fallacy, like that we are, uh, um, so we're an end point of social and, and actual evolution and, uh, in, in the right. sense that we are like a purposeful end point, like we're the, the perfection of something which has been evolving over time. And so the, the and, and, and so the, uh, and to the American narrative is one of, the evolving and and bettering of the community of equals, right? Our better conception of what we've always meant, and we're, we have perfected ourselves, and we just take everything for granted uh, as the right baseline because the right battles have been won. Right. What do you think? Is that do I? Is that? I don't know. I don't know how to end this because we're never going to end it, are we? Well, the French saying is, and it may be appropriate here as well, both for the ideas you were just mentioning and for the fact that we have trouble ending, uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Hmm. Well, there you go. <laughs> That's it. You don't, want to, you don't want to say anything else. I don't. Is that because you really want to end the show or you've got nothing else to say? Uh, I really want to end the show. Boom, done.